the incessant pacing from the apartment above his room that had disturbed Vice President Andrew Johnson much of the evening finally stopped around 10, when the man responsible for the noise, George Azrot, checked out of his room and left. As an eight-year-old child, Azrot came to America with his parents in the 1840s. They came looking for better economic opportunities than existed in their home country of Saxony. Although he had lived in Maryland for over 20 years, he could only speak English with a heavy German accent. He never applied for citizenship and never voted. By 1865, he developed skills repairing carriages for a time and operated a shop in Port Tobacco. The town itself was a hotbed of southern sympathizers. Due to its proximity to the Potomac, it was a convenient place for Confederate spies to cross between Virginia and Maryland. It's likely that Azrit was one of the ferrymen that helped transport Confederates across the river. At any rate, Azrit and one of these spies, John Surratt, became friends. Although there's no clear evidence that Azrut had strong political leanings, it is clear that he was impressionable and was the type that would follow where others encouraged him to go. He was also struggling financially. Port Tobacco was a small town well past its prime. Its residents were mostly poor. Consequently, by the end of 1864, his business was struggling to stay afloat, and he was looking for additional sources of income. Early in 1865, Surratt invited Azra to join a conspiracy designed to make the conspirators rich while at the same time saving the Confederacy. They were going to kidnap the President of the United States. In fact, starting with Inauguration Day, the conspirators made several attempts to carry out their plans, but all failed for one reason or another. Then, on April 9th, to the surprise of no one except, perhaps, the conspirators, Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. The surrender signaled the beginning of the collapse of the Confederacy and changed the conspiracy. No longer was there a Confederacy to save, but their leader, the well-known actor John Wilkes Booth, perhaps thinking to destroy the North as it had destroyed his beloved South, changed the conspiracy's goal from kidnapping and wealth to assassination. By killing the leaders of the North, the President, Vice President, Secretary of State, and the general who won the war for the North, Ulysses S. Grant, surely the nation would be thrown into chaos and the government would collapse. The coordinated attack was to take place the evening of April 14, 1865, the day before Good Friday. With Booth attacking the president while attending a theater production with his wife, Louis Payne was to attack Secretary of State Seward and Azrit, the vice president. Although opposed to the plan, Azra nevertheless rented a room in the Kirkland House, a hotel where Vice President Johnson was living while his official residence was being prepared for he and his family. Azra, however, changed his mind. Instead of walking into Johnson's apartment and shooting him, as the plan called for, he simply checked out of the hotel and wandered the streets of Washington for the remainder of the evening. During the conspirators' trial, Azrit claimed that his actions in fact protected the vice president and should have resulted in his acquittal. However, he and three other conspirators were executed July 7, 1865. The charge was conspiracy to assassinate the president. The fifth conspirator, John Wilkes Booth, had died in a hail of gunfire just two weeks after Lincoln's death. Hi, I'm Charles McCloskey, and this is Shotguns and Sugar where we take a look at the history you don't always learn about in school. In this episode, we're going to talk about the closing days of the Civil War. 
The genesis of this podcast is the result of a research assignment that I completed on the Sultana disaster while working on my doctorate in heritage studies at Arkansas State University. For those of you who are interested, I have included a list of works cited for this podcast on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. Our discussion of the real end of the Civil War begins with Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Delivered on March 4, 1865, the President's remark looked forward to the issues facing the United States after the disastrous Civil War wound up. One of his comments included his dream for a unifying nation. When he asked that the Union be reconstructed with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Two days later, on March 6, 1865, the Confederacy began to relocate prisoners of war held in the notorious Cahaba Prisoner of War Camp near Selma, Alabama, and the infamous Andersonville Prison, to a parole camp in western Mississippi. Designed to hold only 500 POWs, Cahaba held some 3,000 troops at the end of the war. During the fall of 1864 and the opening months of 1865, it was becoming increasingly apparent that this Confederacy would not survive much longer. Dispirited by Sherman's march to the sea and ongoing defeats in the battlefield, the Confederacy was finding it increasingly difficult to supply its own troops with adequate food, much less Union prisoners of war who were slowly being starved to death in camps like Cahaba and the larger Andersonville. In March 1865, the commander at Cahaba brokered a deal with an officer in the Union Quartermaster Corps based in Vicksburg, Mississippi. The deal would provide support for the Union prisoners of war until they could be released. The Union troops held in Confederate POW's camps were to be paroled to a camp near Vicksburg, Mississippi. The camp was to be managed and guarded by Union forces who also provided shelter, food, and clothing to the prisoners. If this sounds like Union troops regarding other Union troops who are being held, officially, as prisoners of war of the Confederacy, you have hit the nail on the head. In late April, Confederate commanders at Cahaba and Andersonville started releasing their prisoners. The 10-day trip involved travel by train and riverboat as well as by foot. The nearest railhead was about 10 miles from the camp. Given their weakened conditions caused by the prolonged malnutrition, including illnesses like scurvy and dysentery from living in the POW camps, many of the POWs died on their way to the new camp. On a more positive note, there are accounts of how, as the surviving POWs neared the camp, soldiers looked up and saw the Union flag flying above the trees and burst into tears, realizing that they had almost made it through the ordeal of Civil War prisoner of war camps. The camp was located on neutral territory between the Black River and Vicksburg, Mississippi. Formerly designated Parole Camp, the POWs called it Camp Fisk in honor of the Union colonel in command. Though it only lasted a short time, really a matter of weeks, the camp and its leadership played a pivotal role in making the Sultana's last journey into the nation's worst maritime disaster. But that's a different episode. This session's focus is on the Civil War and its immediate aftermath. Anyhow, to continue with the timeline, on April 9, 1865, about the time the POWs were beginning to arrive at the parole camp, 
Robert E. Lee surrendered his Army of Northern Virginia to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. While generally understood to be the end of the Civil War, this event was merely the beginning of the collapse of the Confederacy. Five days after Appomattox, on the evening of April 14, 1865, at about the same time John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln, Payne broke into Secretary of State Seward's home to stab him to death. However, the attack went wrong, and the Secretary, though injured, lived to buy Alaska from the Russians two years later. Azrat, as discussed earlier, changed his mind, permitting Andrew Johnson to become the 17th president and the first one to be impeached. The conspirator assigned to kill Grant, David Harold, took the same route as Azrat, permitting the general to become the 18th president of the United States. President Lincoln, as we know, died early the next morning. Notified of the assassination by telegraph while it was preparing to disembark from the docks in St. Louis, the Sultana carried the news to the river cities in Missouri, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana on its last trip south to New Orleans. On April 26, 1865, only about 14 days after Appomattox, General Joseph E. Johnson surrendered his Confederate forces to William T. Sherman in Durham, North Carolina. Also, John Wilkes Booth lost a gun battle with Union troops at Garrett's Farm near Port Royal, Virginia. About a week later, on May 4, 1865, Abraham Lincoln's remains were interred in Springfield, Illinois' Oak Ridge Cemetery. That same day, General Richard Taylor surrendered his Confederate forces in Mobile, Alabama, to Union General Edward Canby. Six days later, on May 10, 1865, Union forces captured Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederate States of America, outside Irwinville, Georgia. Two days after Davis's capture, and just over two months after Appomattox, Union General Theodore H. Barrett ordered an attack on the Confederate camp near Fort Brown on the southern tip of Texas. By the end of the battle on May 13th, about 250 Confederate troops had defeated a force of 500 Union soldiers. The Battle of Palmito Ranch, as it is known today, is widely considered to be the last land battle of the Civil War. About two weeks after the Battle of Palmito Ranch, on May 26, 1865, Simon Bulver Buckner received a letter outlining terms of surrender for his Confederate troops in the Trans-Mississippi Department. That's the part of the South that is west of the Mississippi River. A week later, on June 2, 1865, General Kirby Smith, a Confederate general whose army had deserted back to their homes, formally surrendered his troops in the Trans-Mississippi region to Union General Edward Canby at Galveston, Texas. Later that month, on June 19th, Major General Gordon Granger, having recently arrived in Galveston, Texas, published General Order No. 3. This order officially notified slaves in the state that, under the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation issued two years earlier, all slaves were freed. As Texas was the last state to be so informed, June 19th marks the day that the last of the slaves in the rebelling states were freed. This day, known as Juneteenth, is evolving into a nationwide celebration, especially among the African-American community here in the United States. On June 23, 1865, about two and a half months after Appomattox, General Stan Waite, a Cherokee chief and leader of the Cherokee Nation fighting for the Confederates, led the remainder of his troops into Dokesville Indian Territory, that's present-day Oklahoma, and surrendered to Union forces there. General Waite's surrender removed the last organized fighting force 
fielded by the Confederate States of America from the battlefield. As I reported earlier, on July 17, 1865, four of the conspirators responsible for the president's death, Azrit Payne, Harold, and Mary Surratt, were executed. Mary owned the boarding house the conspirators used for a meeting place. There is no evidence that she was aware of their plans, but she was hung with the rest due to guilt by association. Others associated with the conspiracy, close to a dozen people, were tried in other courts, and most of them received prison sentences. Five months later, on December 6, 1865, Georgia became the 27th state to ratify the 13th Amendment, making slavery officially illegal in the United States. Congress had approved the amendment on January 31st that year, so it only took 11 months to become law, a very fast approval for amendments to the Constitution. Also, given that Georgia was a Confederate state, it illustrates how quickly the key elements of Reconstruction happened after the Confederacy collapsed. On February 6, 1866, Congress enacted a bill that extended the life of the Freedmen's Bureau indefinitely. It also expanded its scope. The Bureau was formally established by Abraham Lincoln in March of 1865, around the same time as his second inauguration, but originally it was to only last for one year. On August 20, 1866, 14 months after Stan Waite surrendered the last Confederate fighting force, 15 months after the last battle of the war, and 16 months after Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, President Andrew Johnson signed a proclamation formally ending hostilities between the North and South, officially bringing an end to the American Civil War. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com, and tune into future podcasts about the wonders of history.